let's just take a couple of deep breaths together. Really slowly. And just notice that you've arrived here. It's a beautiful day. Whatever is happening in your life is happening in your life. So much that we can't control. Notice any place that you are feeling tight or tense, feeling as if the body is gripping, the shoulders and the muscles of the face are usually the places shoulder, around the shoulders, the angel wings, I call them, and up through the neck and into the muscles of the face is usually where we hold a lot of our tension. So it's helpful to pay attention to just how we are holding ourselves in that area. And it's not so much to judge it or to think it's wrong or bad, but just to notice, oh, this is tightness or tension or, or however you language it is okay. It's not, it's not important. It's, what's more important is that you feel the feeling of that gripping. Not in a judgmental way, as I said, but in a way of noticing it so that we can create the space in which it can, by itself, let go. So we're not making anything happen. We're not wishing anything away. We're not denying anything or suppressing anything. We're simply creating space in our practice for the natural movement of life to come and go. So things appear, even this tightness in the body appears. It abides for a while, perhaps, and then it disbands. It stays when we grasp or cling or wish things were other than they are. So our meditation is uh, really a hymn to freedom, a joyful rejoicing in the fact that we are alive and we are here, however it is for us. There may be grief, sadness, loss, all manner of ways in which life is difficult. And yet it always holds tremendous promise because of the plasticity of experience. So we, when we sit down to meditate, we can establish ourselves in that understanding. So when we take a deep breath, it's to take it all in. And when we take a breath out, 
It's to let it all out. And in that way, it's a template for just how life is. The tide comes in, it goes out. The breath comes in, it goes out. Experience comes in and goes out. And we establish ourselves in that free-flowing knowing wisdom of how it is and compassion at the same time for how it is. So we fly in our meditative and contemplative way with these two wings, wisdom and compassion. And we approach our practice in that way so that we're not harsh or judging or wanting it to be perfect, but simply establishing ourselves in this present moment. Ah, we're here. Ah. So letting the past rest and acknowledging the fact that the future never arrives. It's never here. We can come gently into this present moment. We hear, we smell, we touch, we taste, we see, and we think. That's the sum total of our experience. So allow the hearing to support your arriving in the present moment. Just hearing. And can we hear without reactivity, simply knowing the hearing of sound, not needing to judge it, not needing to push certain sounds away or grasp and cling to others. We sit in the, in the middle of this sense of hearing. Notice how it comes and goes. 
And there's a sense of touch. The buttocks on the seat and that pressure that is caused by the weight being held by the seat. The contact of your clothing on your skin, the air on your skin. and feelings in the body, just from this sense of touch, where your hands meet your body, where your eyelid, your upper eyelid touches the lower lid, your lips come together. And perhaps sensations in the body, tingling, tightness, pressure, flow, heaviness, solidity, lightness, fluidity. In the sense of taste and smell, senses of taste and smell, maybe the most subtle or not. And if the eyes are closed, perhaps there are images that come in the mind or not. So we can be aware of all of those experiences, those sense experiences, without pulling or pushing, clinging or rejecting. And one bodily experience that continues moment to moment to moment is the experience of breath. Creates contact in the body. Taking a deep breath, you can notice the sensations that come with the movement of breath. And notice where the breath presents itself to your attention most predominantly.
Is it at the nostrils where the air enters and leaves? Or the chest or the belly where the breath rises on the, the, the chest or the belly rise on the in-breath or fall on the out-breath. Pay attention to that. And wherever you found in the body that the breath is most easily detected, known, let the attention rest there. needing to do anything or adjust the breath or make anything happen or wish for any state to arrive. It's just enough to be present for this moment. We, we rarely stop and pause just to know how it is right now. So our meditation is that opportunity that we luxuriously afford ourselves to know right now how it is in the body and in the sixth sense, the mind. So as we pay attention to the movement of breath in the place that you've chosen in your body, You may notice that thoughts arrive unbidden. And just as hearing, smelling, tasting, seeing, touching were not a problem, neither is thinking. And in the same way that we noticed these other five senses, we can notice thinking with, again, without judgment and without indulging, without reacting, without clinging to a thought or pushing it away. We simply know it. And we allow it to arise, abide, and pass away in exactly the same way we allowed these other five senses to present, come into being, and pass away. <coughs> and paying attention, tying our attention to the breath, we allow that to be our uh, mainstay, our uh, predominant object of attention. And when we're pulled away by a thought or any of the other senses, we simply know it 
allow it to arise, abide, and, to pa and pass. And when it does, return to the breath. In this way, we dance with experience rather than pushing and pulling at it. We allow it to come and go as is its natural habit, its natural way. And we establish ease in the body and in the mind. No need to try to make anything happen. We're simply establishing presence right now and right here. If you've been spacing out and occupied with thought, it's grabbed you. In every moment you can return, simply without comment or analysis or judgment. Just return the attention to the sensation of breath coming into and leaving the body. Allow your attention to be uh, captured by that. And you begin again.
So is there anyone here who's never received instructions for walking meditation? Instructions for walking meditation. You have you, do you need them? You do, you haven't received them. You too? Okay. So let's do some walking meditation and those of you who've, who'd like instructions, please come to the front and I'll give them to you. And we'll do that for about, uh, we'll ring the bell in about 10 minutes so we'll be settled in 15. Do you have any questions about the, um, the instructions, the, the, the practice instructions? Good, so you all went into per- the fourth jhana. <laughs> so before we um, talk about the Dharma, although everything is Dharma. Um, I just have a few announcements to make about what's happening at New York Insight this week. Uh, there's a, uh, an evening on April 16th. I guess that's what, Wednesday or Thursday? Wednesday. Wednesday. Um, called Dharma in Dialogue with Dr. J. Michelson and Sabrina Sojourner. And it sounds very interesting. It's called Why Are You So Sensitive? And it's, uh, it's a discussion about contemplatives that are involved in social activism, social justice, um, and how to, how to um, blend those two parts of your life. Uh, I know a lot of the time uh, social activists or social justice activists always ask about the aspect of Dharma that's acceptance. Because of course if you're involved in trying to change the world, uh, it feels uh, counterintuitive or oxymoronic to accept things as they are. But it, they actually do, it, it, it actually is um, quite um, harm- harmonious to not bring to the world um, hatred in trying to change it. So if that's something that is interesting to you, that will be on the 16th. <clears throat> and uh, on Friday night, uh, Amatanasanti Bhikkhuni will be here um, screening a movie called The Buddha's Forgotten Nuns, and I'll be with her, as well as a wonderful teacher named um, uh, Roshi Enkyo O'Hara, who's a Zen Roshi at uh, the New York Zen Center. And the three of us uh, will be talking about um, the, the issue of uh, equality for women in the Dharma, 
the history of it is that the Buddha's times were very different and women were always under the protection of their fathers or their husbands or whatever male was in the home. And it got uh, it culturally included in the, in, the, um, in the tradition. And for me, it's really been a journey as a, as a woman to be involved in a, in a, uh, in a tradition, in a religion that uh, essentially it's at its roots did not really uh, consider women to be equal. So it's, again, this issue of how we harmonize all of the different parts of our lives and how the Dharma, how we can accept the Dharma as it is um, and still not feel as if we're compromising our, our values. So I think it will be an interesting, it will be a very interesting conversation. And uh, Tanasanti is a very good friend of mine and, and she's an, a very interesting person. So you will enjoy her. Uh, we ask, we remind you that it's possible to be a member of New York Insight, that we are an organization that is completely belonging to the community. It's n it doesn't belong to any one or more people. And we therefore depend on, the community depends on every person who is interested in the um, maintenance and sustenance of the Dharma, uh, supporting it in many ways by being a volunteer here. And we have Lori and who's, and Bob are, are here. Thank you very much for your service. Uh, it, we really need people to volunteer to be uh, event coordinators, event uh, managers. Right now we need uh, a graphic design, one or more graphic design volunteers. So if you have that talent, we'd love to know who you are and for you to uh, contribute your various talents or any other talents that you have that you think might be of help. And we also um, ask that if you attend New York Insight regularly, that you consider becoming a member and supporting it. Um, I'm a member of New York Insight. And I'm, a, I'm also a member of several Dharma organizations around the country where I send uh, money gets taken out of my credit card every month. And it's always very joyful when I open my credit card bill and I see, oh, Spirit Rock. Yes, I'm supporting that too. It's wonderful because what, what I realize uh, in, the, uh, is in, in my support that essentially I'm joining a stream of generosity. And that stream of generosity brings a tremendous amount of joy. I was just talking to my husband about it the other, yesterday, I think, about generosity and how much joy it brings, that it opens the heart, it um, makes our hearts really flutter with delight when we, um, when we support others. So in the support of New York Insight, you are really saying, I'm joining this stream that's 2,600 years old 
that essentially is here because of the generosity of all of the beings who have um, valued it over these millennia. And so uh, we ask that you consider, we, you consider that too. At our events, our sitting events, we don't charge a fee and uh, the teachers who come, including myself, do not receive any compensation for our teachings and we joyfully, joyfully offer them. And if you wish to support us and to support the center, there are uh, baskets in the back that um, you can leave a, a donation and that donation will be split evenly between New York Insight and myself or any other event that you go to. It, it's usually split, uh, that you haven't paid a fee. Uh, it's split between the teacher and the, and the center. So uh, consider all of that part of, part of uh, your practice. It's not separate from, but the Buddha taught generosity as the first, uh, the first exercise with any student that would come his way. Uh, because he felt that without the basis or the foundation established in generosity, that the heart was not open and therefore could not receive the teachings. So it's a beautiful, it's a really beautiful um, custom and a beautiful tradition and a beautiful way of remembering our interdependence, that we're not separate and alone but that we are part of a community and that being a part of a community involves all of the benefits and also the responsibilities. So I hope you joyfully partake of that. Hmm. I have so many things I want to talk about this morning. I'm not sure what is going to happen, but we'll We'll both be surprised. I want to talk a little bit about the, um, the basic teaching of the Buddha. And I love to talk about it because it encompasses the entire Dharma. And there are so, once we are established in this teaching, there are so many ways that it takes us and so many ways that we can choose to practice. And the most important thing about it, about the Dharma and about the teaching, is that it's not idealistic. That the Buddha taught the, this teaching, which are, is called the Four Noble Truths, not essentially for us to become like parrots, and be able to name them. But because he wanted us to establish ourselves in wisdom and compassion. And this teaching that he gave, which is the very first teaching that he ever gave after his enlightenment, was a way for um, him to express the, the awakening that he had experienced. And after he experienced this awakening, 
the legend is that he said it was so marvelous but so complex that he would not teach it because nobody would understand. And it said that the, that a, the Brahma god, who in, in his day, the Bra Brahmanism was the main religion in India. It said that the Brahma god Sahampati appeared to him and said, you must teach because there are beings whom he said had just a little dust in their eyes and that the teaching would blow away that dust. And so the Buddha then at that point uh, reflected and he said, okay, I, I'll, I'll see if I can do that. And then he reflected and he thought, well, who can I teach? And he thought about he, his teachers because he had gone through a whole journey um, up to being an ascetic. He had, he had studied with many teachers of the, you know, the, the prominent teachers of the day and eventually got to asceticism and it said that he almost died because he, at one point he was just eating one grain of rice a day. And uh, he, he thought, well, I'll go back to the teachers that I had because although they were wonderful and I, although I decided that it wasn't the way to my awakening, I really appreciated who they were and they're wise people, so I'll go back and teach them. And then when he saw it said with his third eye, his teachers had died. So he didn't have the opportunity to tell them about his own awakening. And so he decided then that since his teachers had died that he had been with five ascetic, ascetics when he practiced asceticism and that he would teach them. So he went to the, it said the park in Varanasi where they were and of course at that point they were shunning him because they felt that he had gone to the other side, right? He was now eating and, you know, <laughs> taking sustenance. <laughs> no good, no good. And so they were like, oh, go away, right? But then they looked and they saw him and they saw, well, there, first there was, a, there was another teaching first that I'll tell you about. And the teaching, his first teaching was, as he was awakened and he was walking down the street, the road, I guess, in those days, um, he happened upon a guy, right, just a regular guy. And the guy just looked at him and he was glowing. The Buddha was said to be very handsome and very beautiful. And, but he, on top of that, he, on his physical appearance, he was just spiritually so amazing. He was hugely luminous. And the guy said to him, like, who are you? What are you? you know, are, you a, are you a king? And the Buddha said, no. He said, are you a god? And the Buddha said, no. And he said, what are you? And he said, I am the fully enlightened one. guy looked at him and said, the equivalent of whatever, right, and walked away. And I really appreciate that story because it means that the Buddha's first teaching was a flop, <laughs> right? 
So whenever I get nervous about sitting on the seat, I remember, ah, the Buddha flopped, you know, so it's okay. So, and then the whole thing happened with the uh, ascetics, and the ascetics were, at first they, they didn't want to talk to him, but then they looked at him and they realized that something genuine had transformed in him. And so he sat down, they allowed him to sit down with them. And he gave them this teaching. And it said that they spontaneously too were awakened. So this teaching is, a, is an important teaching, but I do give you the caveat, which I said before, that it's not to be idealized or memorized. But actually, it's a teaching to be um, integrated into your every breath, into your every movement, into your every moment. It's a teaching that you can actually uh, see for yourself. And, and the Buddha invites you to see for yourself. He's, he's, he's said often, do not accept something because I said so, or because a teacher that you respect says so, but actually take what you hear, put it into operation in your own life. And when you do that, see what is true for you. But not only in the sense of, this is my opinion, this is not my opinion, I believe that, I don't believe that. But actually look to see what produces wholesome results in your life. And those things you take and incorporate. And whatever produces unwholesome results in your life, let go of, you know? And maybe you'll come back to them later on, or maybe you won't. Maybe they'll be forever unwholesome. So it's a, it's a beautiful way of inviting us in to really look at what he realized. And so it's said that this... Uh, teaching set the wheel of the Dharma in motion. So it's the teaching of the Four Noble Truths. And everything that you study in the Dharma comes, this is the foundation of every single, th every talk you'll hear, every, uh, every book you read on Dharma, everything that you learn will be based on this teaching and it's a teaching for incorporation. So these Four Noble Truths are uh, that there is what's called Dukkha. And I'll come back to that in a moment. It's usually translated as suffering, but I think it's a, it's a, it's a translation that's put a lot of people off. So we'll talk about what that means. And the second is that there is an origin or a cause of dukkha. And it's craving in many forms, really three forms, greed, hatred, and delusion. Sometimes it is desire, aversion, and ignorance. And there's a third noble truth, which is that dukkha can cease. Hallelujah. Right? And the fourth 
is that there is an actual path to that cessation. And that path is called the Noble Eightfold Path that essentially consists of three limbs, wisdom, morality, and meditation. Panya, sila, and samadhi in Pali. And with the wisdom limb consists of wise understanding and wise aspiration. And the sila limb, the morality limb, consists of wise action, wise speech, and wise livelihood. And uh, the contemplation or meditation or samadhi limb consists of right effort or wise effort, wise mindfulness, and wise concentration. That's the entire bag of tricks, right? The entire dharma is contained in that very short and pithy teaching. So I'm going to go through those, these four noble truths and just to, for you to realize this is a total summary and that really it's for you. It's for you to investigate if you think that it resonates at some place in your body or your mind. So there's a dukkha and this is from one of the uh, suttas called the Dukkata Sutta. The sutta on suffering. Sutta means a discourse, the discourses of the Buddha. And it says, monks, there are these three kinds of suffering. What three? Suffering caused by pain. Suffering caused by conditioned existence. And suffering due to change. It is for the full comprehension, clear understanding, ending, and abandonment of these three forms of suffering, or dukkha, that the Noble Eightfold Path is to be cultivated. So notice right away, we're identifying the, um, the, 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 the disease, right? We're looking at the, so we, we have a diagnosis, we're looking at the cause of that. We're going to uh, see if it, the, how the prognosis is, right? There can be cessation. There can be an ending of this disease. And uh, then the medicine, the path. So it's like an Ayurvedic formula in which this, these Four Noble Truths are enunciated. So I know when I first came to the Dharma, when I heard that word suffering, I said, uh-uh, not for me, I'm not suffering. No way, I'm suffering. I had a pretty good life, right? It was, you know, I, I had a career. Um, I had good relationships with my, with my family. I had good relationships with... Um, <coughs> You know, my friends, with boyfriends. Um, I, you know, my career, I made enough money. So things were pretty good, right? And I thought, okay, you know, so these people are suffering, but it ain't me, right? 
But I think it's because we use the word suffering, which seems so extreme, that we miss, we miss, we misunderstand what the Buddha was getting at. So the first one is dukkha, du so these three kinds of suffering, dukkha dukkata, it's called, the first one. And it's the actual, the actual feeling of mental, of physical pain or mental anguish, right? Anybody have any of that? Yeah, somebody, uh, you actually have pain? Wow. And the, the um, second is Sankara Dukkha, which is the suffering produced by all conditioned phenomena. <laughs> So it's everything, it's everything. And when I heard of, when it started to get a little bit more precise and I heard of this, I realized that, and I have students who when they first come, when I say, look at what, look at difficult feelings in your being, they say, I'm not feeling anything, right? And, and I, I, uh, feel some uh, sisterhood with that because it's, that's how I felt. I felt everything was kind of neutral in my life, right? Good and neutral. But it's actually um, what, the, what the text, the commentaries call a hedonically neutral feeling, that there is an imperfectibility in all of conditioned existence. You notice that? Nothing's perfect. Or anybody have something that's perfect they can tell me about, right? Have you ever noticed that nothing is perfect? And have you noticed how much we grasp after perfection, right? How we, how we want things to be perfect. And if they're not perfect, we think it's our fault. And if we don't want it to be our fault, it must be somebody else's fault. It can't possibly be nobody's fault. So we look, you know, we kind of scan the horizon for someone to blame, someone to pin it on that it's not perfect because clearly there must be some perfection out there. We're just missing it. When we were born, everybody else got the key, but they forgot to give it to us, right? So there can't be any final satisfaction in this incessant turning of the wheel of life. And that gives us a kind of, you know, it, you never feel as if you, you know, even if there are moments when you feel as if, okay, finally I've got it. All right, something happens, an itch. You know, you ever notice that in meditation? When we sit and, you know, the mind's going, the mind's going, the body doesn't, and then suddenly everything just drops and you feel like, okay, this is it. And then something happens. You feel thirsty, you want to grab for something to drink. There's an itch in your, you know, in your back, you can't even reach it. Or a pain comes up, out of nowhere. Nothing that you did, nobody's fault. You're in pain. And the moment before, it was perfect. So there's this feeling of no matter how we try to arrange our lives, that this 
essential nature of being, the essential nature of existence, is conditioned. And that this conditioned nature means that there is no final satisfaction in anything. We get the perfect job, we lose it. We get the perfect relationship, stuff happens, right? We thought it was the perfect relationship. Now it's the worst relationship we ever had, <laughs> right? Friends become enemies. Enemies become friends. Nothing stays the same. And that's the third uh, that's the third one, but the second one, this uh, suffering of, or dukkha of conditioned existence, to really not be indifferent to it, to really see it as it is, not try to force it, force some concept onto reality, but to actually look and see how it is. Is that really true for you? Can you really notice it? Can you really understand it? And not be indifferent to that dukkha, that suffering, and to, be, to allow yourself to be moved by it. It's important that we be moved by it because in, the, in being moved by it, we begin to understand our connectedness to every single being who is on this planet and beyond in this existence with us. So that our wisdom is always informed by compassion. It's never some dry kind of, now I got it, now I know it, and I'm good. But really the understanding of we are all, every last one of us, all of the creatures of this earth, including us as human beings, we are all subject to this conditioned existence. And the third is viparinama dukkha, which is the suffering of change. And it's associated with pleasant and bodily, pleasant bodily and mental sensations and feelings. It's like, ah, now we got it. And then it changes, right? the relationship, the job, the house, the car, the people, the family. Get it into that, you know, we get it all sorted out and then bang, it all falls apart. So there are these three kinds of dukkha that you can look at. And so this first noble truth that there is dukkha is pointing us to actually seeing it. So that even in those most high places that we may attain, to really have it in the back of your mind, oh, there's no perfection. So that when it changes, what else did we expect, right? Our health changes. People we love, we lose. Things we want, we don't get. Things we do want, we get, and then they disappear. So looking at dukkha, 
is the first thing. And what did the Buddha say about it? He said there's an a, a insight that must come with that. There is dukkha. Dukkha must be understood. So he points us towards experience again, to understanding it, how it works in our life. And then the second truth, that there is an origin or a cause for it. So he says, the reason that we have this disease, this unskillful effect, is there is an unskillful cause. And this unskillful cause is craving. Now, craving is a, really a term of art. Because actually the exposition of this truth, which I can't go into today, we don't have the time, we need lots of time for it, is called uh, the 12 links of dependent origination, in which we understand that everything is dependently originated, that nothing stands by itself. I think it's John Muir, the naturalist, that said, we can't pick out anything in the universe and study it all by itself. Because as soon as we do, we see all of the other uh, causes it has on other things in the universe and all of the effects that other things in the universe have on it. when we try to pick out anything by itself, we find it hitched to everything else in the universe. And Martin Luther King talked about an inescapable network of mutuality that we are all in together, that we are all completely interdependent and connected interconnected to each other. He says, when we get up in the morning, we reach for a, a sponge made by a Turk, we soap by a, French, a Frenchman, tea, or tea by a, a, a Chinese person, or um, cocoa by a West African. Before we've, we've toast from an English farmer, he says, by the time we leave for work in the morning, we're already indebted to half the world. <laughs> right? So this, this notion of dependent origination is really key because it points to not only how this suffering happens because of this complete interconnection of everything in the world together, but there's an actual way in which we go from ignorance to suffering, from ignorance to dukkha. And there are 12 links, which I won't go into. But essentially, the, there's one link where he says, you can break the chain. So you want to know about that, right? And that link where you break the chain is where there is contact 
So, you know, when we were listening, hearing, see, seeing, smelling, tasting, touching, thinking, there's contact, something impinges on one of our senses. A feeling arises that it's either pleasant, unpleasant, or neither pleasant nor unpleasant. And we react to it. We crave what's pleasant. We want to push away what's unpleasant. And we ignore what's neutral. Meanwhile, 95% of our experience is neutral. Right? But we're so busy craving what's pleasant and pushing away what's unpleasant, trying to reach that perfection that I was talking about, that that's where the suffering arises. And he says, if you can actually be mindful, right, this is where our meditation practice comes into effect. If we can actually be mindful in that moment and actually see the contact and the feeling and let go of that reactivity, just like we did when we listened to sounds, right? There were sounds of beautiful bells. Did you want them to stop or did you want them to continue? And then there was the of the cars, right? And people coming in and the floorboards creaking. Did you want that to stop? Or were you actually able to sit in the midst of that and not feel as if it had to be different? Because if you can sit in the midst of that and not feel it has to be different, that's practice for when the real stuff starts to hit the fan. Right? You know what I mean. Right? Where the reactivity, because he's saying that the origin of this dukkha is this reactivity of clinging to, craving for, pushing away, or ignoring, if we really notice that, we notice how that happens, suffering can end. And that's the third truth that there is liberation. And that's a big subject too, right? So each of these truths is a big subject. And in the Buddha's words, that was called Nibbana, the deathless. Beauty. Where we're in the midst of our stuff, we're in the midst of life, this change, this stress of change, that we come, we age, we get sick, and we die. That's the journey of life. And can we live that you know, in, a, in a dignified and awakened way? Or will we live it craving and clinging to what's pleasant, trying to make things so perfect that that's all we get. Good luck with that. Anybody have only pleasant in their lives? Come on, Some, there must be somebody in the room, right? Or can we live in this even in the midst of the most difficult problems? in the midst of this dukkha of change, 
dukkha of conditioned existence, dukkha of physical pain and mental anguish. He's saying that it's possible to not be buffeted by those winds. And then he says, well, how is that possible? And he says, there's a path. The path that I outlined. But we know what a path is, right? If a path is, if, if, if somebody cuts a path through the jungle, it's not really a path. It's not a path until somebody steps on it. It's going to get over, you know, the, 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 the plants are going to come back, the vines are going to come back because it's not being walked. And what the Buddha gave us in this fourth noble truth, the truth of the path, is that there is an actual way to journey through this inner landscape. And that we are pilgrims in our inner landscape. But a pilgrim doesn't stay at home. A pilgrim walks the path. And through the walking of that path, there is the freedom that comes. And what is the freedom that comes? It's this loving awareness that leads, that leads to wisdom and compassion so that we're living in it. It's not about the conditions of our life. I'm always very inspired by the fact that the Buddha had backache after he was awakened. Right? There are many suttas in which he says to his cousin Ananda, who is his um, attendant, you do the Dharma talk tonight, right? Because my back is killing me. And I've got to lie down. Because what that tells me is that the freedom of which he's speaking is not freedom from conditions because as long as we're alive, we're in conditions. But that it's actually freedom from this craving for conditions. And when we have freedom from this craving for conditions, there is Nibbana, there is the deathless. We're no longer living buffeted by these winds. So behind the restless movement of the mind comes a stillness of being. And the stillness has no name. It has no reputation. It's got nothing to hold on to, nothing to protect, nothing to perfect. It's the natural mind. It's the freedom from this idea that there's an actual separate I, me. And it comes from 
the perniciousness of that comes from our thoughts, comes from the idea that this bunch of thoughts that are coming into the mind are I. And we begin to know how to do that when we walk this eightfold path of wisdom, morality, and contemplation or meditation. We begin to know the fluctuations of our hearts. We begin to be able to let go of these fluctuations of the heart. And we begin to let go into a deeper level of being. We're not floating on this superficial level of I want, I need, I must have, I hate. We settle into a kind of stillness. We begin to remember that these states that come and go, that are adventitious, they arise and abide and pass away, everything. Arising, abiding, and passing away, everything, 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 nothing is outside of this. That as they come and go, that these states can be our teachers. They can remind us that they are, we are not these painful densities. And densities, what I mean by densities is our flow gets coagulated. I think it's Parmenides, the Greek philosopher, who said that we're like flames, right? Coming and going. And we see we become light when we let go of the identification with these painful densities. So I'll close so that we have a few minutes for you to tell me what you're thinking with um, words from Pierre Vilyat Khan, who's a Sufi master. He said, overcome any bitterness that may have come because you were not up to the magnitude of the pain that was entrusted to you. Like the mother of the world who carries the pain of the world in her heart, each of us is part of her heart and therefore endowed with a certain measure of cosmic pain. You are sharing in the totality of that pain. You are called upon to meet it in joy instead of self-pity. The secret, he says, offer your heart as a vehicle to transform cosmic suffering into joy. Thank you. So let's just sit for a moment.
beautiful talk you gave and it really affected me. Tell me your name. Mitchell. Mitchell. Beautiful. Thank you. So I'll repeat it. Uh, so Mitchell basically said that there are times when he gets a glimpse of this third noble truth, right? That there is a, an inner light. He's, I'm, I'm paraphrasing. I'm not quoting him perfectly. And then there are times when he'll feel as if he's established in that, but then he'll, uh, he'll interact with people who are not of like mind, maybe at work or in other places. And he finds himself regressing, going back into saying things that he feels are not aligned with his real foundational values. Am I, did I? So the first thing that occurs to me when I listen to you is, that's beautiful. And the second thing that occurs to me is that it's a journey. It's not a destination. And in a way, what you're saying is that you're, you're thinking that there's some perfect place where you'll be so perfect that nobody can say anything that will knock you off your perch, right? And it's a, it, that's why I think it's a beautiful question, because I, because I think that it's a really important thing to remember our humanity and how fragile and hard-won our victories over our pessimism and our um, ignorance are. How do I, yes, are, <laughs> not is. Um, and that it is fragile and it does need protection, right? And what's the protection? The protection is mindfulness. But it doesn't mean that we judge ourselves because we do, do get knocked off our perch. It's like when we're sitting in meditation and we start out with a really you know, strong intention that we're going to be here, we're going to be here, we're going to be here. And then before you know it, you, know, you, you, you realize 15 minutes have gone and you've been in Hawaii. Right? And you don't then get up screaming in the room and say, this is terrible, I don't know where the hell I thought I was, I thought I was gonna be mindful and I'm not mindful and I can't stand it and I can't do this and I'm getting out of here. No, you say, come back. And you begin again. And the meditation practice is so beautiful because that's what it teaches us, is that no matter what happens, we can begin again. So each time that you find yourself saying things that are not aligned with your 
deepest values, can you actually, in that moment, turn to what your body feels like? What does it feel like to say something mean or cruel or harsh or judgmental? What is that actually, instead of judging ourselves for it, it's like, oh, oh, listen to the, oh, just said something really cruel. What does that feel like? You can actually feel the reverberation in your body. Where do I feel it? Oh, my throat feels constricted and stiff. My heart feels sad. My stomach is a little bit knotted. When you, when you put that information into the system, into the organism, it takes it in, in a really deep way. That's, what, that's the value of mindfulness, is when we are really paying attention, our neural pathways are getting built. So when you find yourself in the office over a cup of coffee doing a lot of gossiping and it's not so nice, you don't have to say to your colleagues, just a moment, I'm going to be mindful. You just turn your attention in. Just turn, just turn the att- right in that moment. Oh, gosh, here I am gossiping. And what does it feel like? Feel your feet on the floor. Feel your hands. Are they cold? Are they warm? How's your belly feel? Check in with your three centers, your mind, your heart, and your body. And eventually what you'll notice is that information gets factored into your being. And then have an active, make some effort. So have an active intention. I'm not going to do that if I can help myself. I'm not going to do that again. And every time you, hear, every time you do it again, say, oh, there it is, check in again, I'm not going to do it again. And what you'll notice is that your tendency, your tendency towards it, and the, the suttas talk about latent tendencies. So we have lots of latent tendencies. What you're doing every time you put that information in is you're weakening those latent tendencies. That, that kind of delicious feeling that you get when you gossip, you know, begins to feel not so del- delicious anymore. So you don't want to do it because it doesn't feel good. It doesn't feel delicious. Why do you want to do something that doesn't feel delicious, right? So, you, you, so you, you factor those, that information into the mind and heart and body, and it takes care of itself. Because you can't help who you have to associate with at work, right? But you can also, you know, one of the, th- one of the things that the Buddha said was the most important things in this, on this path is choosing who your friends are. So you clearly have to be, you know, at work with people and all of that, but they don't have to be the people that you actually socialize with. And you don't have to do that in a nasty way either, right? So, you know, you can, you can do it. You can do it. But it takes, it takes effort, it takes practice, it takes intention. Elsewhere, they want to talk 
about other things or on the phone. I was with a friend the other day, she's on her phone. So I said, I'm going to walk ahead of you. Mm -hmm. And I didn't want to get out in the park. Sounds like you handled it perfectly well, right? Or you could start to point out, oh, look at that beautiful, look at the blossoms on the, oh my gosh, spring is really coming. Look at those blossoms. Aren't they beautiful? <gasps> Smell that air. And you can do that without making it some heavy thing that I'm now going to make you mindful. Good luck with that anyway, right? Oh, that would be a loss. Yeah, it is harsh. Yeah. Middle way, middle way, middle way. You're welcome. Yes, Bob. This business about Duker, I found it hard to understand too. I heard a talk where he said it's from the back in the old days in the Buddhist time where they had cars. Yes. And the Duka is sort of a wheel that's squeaking. Yes, yes. Yeah, maybe, yeah. Of the squeaky week of the, the squeaking wheel of life feeling. Of life. Feeling. Except that's not a word. But that's what Jupiter is. Yes. Well the way the um the way the suttas talk about that is that it's it, we get a bumpy ride, right? Because the, the axle doesn't quite fit into the hub. And so the the wheel, you know, because the, the wheel is off, and of course in those days the roads were pretty bumpy anyway, but certainly on a, with a wheel that's where the, the, the axle and the hub don't fit perfectly, it would, you would get a bumpy ride. So thank you. So just a second point, referring to the, the, the guy who was talking Mitchell. About Thank you. Yes. Um, the story you told, um, the Sufi story about the cosmic pain, that story um, shows up to me every now and then. Something, it'll be quoted in something I read, and I picked it up, and I've never seen it attributed to anybody. You've never seen uh, a trip, Pir Vilyat Khan. P-I-R-V-I-L-Y-A-T, that's one word, Vilyat Khan, and he has a fourth name, but I never use it, uh, between Vilyat and Khan, Khan is K-H-A-N. You're welcome, and he's a, he's a 20th century Sufi teacher, so he's, it's not from like way, way back. No, it's 20th century. You're welcome. There was somebody, yeah, hi. And what was your name? Betty. Betty? Becky. Becky. And your name? Ken. Ken. Yeah, I was just, and um, you're the last one because we have to stop. Thank you. Um, I was just thinking about what Bob was relating to what Mitchell was saying and what you were saying about dukkha and suffering. And from what I heard recently, my understanding of the word suffer, it's um, the Greek root word suffer and sympathy are it's the same Greek root and I was just thinking I 
So the so the suffering so the uh, the root of the Greek word that you're talking about is passion. So suffering, passion is the is the one that it has in common. So compassion, suffering with. Thank you. Hmm. So, uh, I, I'm sorry. We have to, and you can come up. You can come up afterwards. Um, so, thank you for your attention and for your practice. And I hope that this inspires you to really um, look more deeply into this teaching, because it really is—it's the whole origin of the Dharma. It, what set the wheel of Dharma in motion, and in and studying it is beautiful in books, and studying it here is even more beautiful, is to really see it for ourselves, because when we see it for ourselves, it becomes truth. We, we have clear comprehension of reality and non-delusion when we study for ourselves and we know it intimately and viscerally in our own experience. So when we practice together, we uh, create a field of what's called in the text merit, but I like to call it goodness. And we share that goodness with every being with whom we share this universe. So we, um, we dedicate the merits of our practice to the benefit, the welfare, the happiness, the well-being and the awakening of all beings everywhere without exception. Wishing in kindness that all beings be happy and peaceful, safe from harm, healthy and strong, and live with complete ease. This is our wish. And if you wish to address these wishes to someone in particular, please feel free to say their names out loud and we will include them in our loving kindness. We bring all of these beings into the room with us and we especially send our kindness wishing that they be safe from harm, happy and peaceful, healthy, strong, and at complete ease. And of course, that includes us too. May you be well. Thank you so much. Have a beautiful day. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.